I think that our guest today is having technical difficulties. So what we had planned for today, we're going to have to do another time. Um, so instead, I thought I'd do something a little bit different here. Uh, I am just going to talk for a few minutes about uh, the uh, lecture that I'm going to give in Toronto in a couple of days um, on uh, G.A. Cohen and John Rawls and Karl Marx and philosophical liberalism. So uh, I'm just going to kind of monologue about that for a few minutes, I think, and then uh, then take any calls. Uh, so... Um, so yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and do that. Uh, so I will just say that I'm gonna be in Toronto uh, the next few days. Uh, so anybody who's uh, anybody who's in the Greater Toronto area who wants to come by uh, on Thursday night at the Duke of York Pub at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, I am going to be doing an event for the Christopher Hitchens book. I'm going to be doing a reading, signing some books, doing an author Q and a, uh, my friends, Matt McManus and Victor Brizona, I think are going to be kind of leading that. Uh, and then we've got the room until midnight. So just, you know, kind of hang out, drink, whatever. Uh, and then on Friday night, I am uh, going to be giving a uh, talk at the philosophy department at Ryerson University. Um, so that is the talk that I mentioned on Mark. Well, originally the, the title was Marx and Philosophical Liberalism, but really it's going to be Marx and Rawls and Cohen and Philosophical Liberalism. So I thought, you know, as a little preview of that for anybody in the greater Toronto area who's going to be able to go or really anybody who's not in the greater Toronto area, but, you know, eventually uh, with any luck we'll have a video of it and we can put it on YouTube. Uh, I thought I'd just kind of go through some of what that talk's going to be about, some of what I've been thinking about, you know, with regard to those subjects. So uh, the talk is uh, sort of grew out of my contribution to a book that uh, Matt McManus edited called um, uh, Liberalism and Socialism, uh, Mortal Enemies or a Bittered Kin. And in my contribution to that book, uh, the uh, the way I do it is uh, I lay out a few different things that liberalism could mean because I think a lot of people, uh, regardless of their ideological views, when they hear about Marxism and liberalism, uh, what they think is, well, obviously these things are incompatible. And I think that depending on what you mean by liberalism, that could in fact be obviously true or not obviously true. Maybe, uh, you know. Maybe not true at all. So, uh, so I think there are at least four things that liberalism could mean. Four things that it does sometimes mean. Uh, so, one thing that it means, of course, is liberalism as a contemporary philosophical position. Uh, when I criticize liberals, which I do very often, that's what I mean. Right, like I say, the libs suck and are awful. I'm referring to liberalism as a position that's taken in contemporary politics. Um, and when I say contemporary, that's like a long contemporary. I mean, like, you know, by the mid 19th century, liber the word liberal was already being used in this way, uh, really earlier in some ways, uh, and it's certainly how it's used now. So uh, now it's a little bit of a you know, family resemblance relation. It kind of describes a lot of more specific political views that have some common threads running through them, but I'm not going to try to do like here are the necessary and sufficient conditions for the precise definition of counted as liberalism in that contemporary philosophical sense. Uh, but I think roughly speaking, I think certainly if we're talking about liberalism in 2022 as a contemporary political position, uh, then think about the dominant position within the U.S. Democratic Party, uh, the um, uh, the uh, the you know Liberal Party in Canada, the Lib Dems in uh, in the U.K. Uh, and um, and then uh, the um, you know and then even the sort of dominant wing of the Labour Party in the U.K. Now that you know Corbyn's kind of out of the picture. Uh, so I, this is, this is a position that I think roughly we can characterize by saying that it is somewhere to the right of social democracy and somewhere to the left of conservatism. 
Uh, so that's, you know, that's vague, that's broad. Um, I, I think that it encompasses stuff ranging from, you know, New Deal liberalism that is almost bordering on social democracy to, um, uh, to, you know, up through like Clintonism, you know, which is bordering on being socially moderate conservatism. Uh, but you know, that's, that's what we're, you know, that's what we're talking about. Um, and that family of political views. And then a second thing that I think liberalism can mean and, you know, often does mean, uh, is constitutional liberalism. Right. So when people talk about like liberal rights or liberal freedoms, they're talking about, again, what we can think of as constitutional liberalism, which really means like limitations on the powers of governments and other kinds of institutions. So, uh, you know, respect for certain kinds of rights, like right to free speech, uh, you know, freedom of religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's all the stuff that, you know, people are talking about um, when um, – when we're talking about constitutional liberalism, you know, right to a trial by jury, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, that's the second one. Then I think a third category um, is what we could call broad philosophical liberalism. So broad philosophical liberalism is just the idea that uh, we're going to um, is just the idea sort of innately morally equal that every human being kind of should uh, have whatever the same package of basic rights is that there's no intrinsic distinction that we should make on the basis of you know race or caste, uh, you know, whether you're born into the aristocracy or you're, you know, born as a serf, uh, that, uh, that everybody sort of has the sort of same moral status, the same, you know, the same moral dignity, all of that stuff. Uh, and so this is an incredibly broad church, right? Like this is an even bigger family resemblance, uh, than political liberalism. Uh, so this, um, when we talk about broad philosophical liberalism, um, what we're you know what we're really talking about um, is everything from like John Locke to John Rawls, for example. So uh, both you know you're talking about both you know libertarians certainly fit within broad philosophical liberalism, uh, but you know so do democratic socialists. Uh, so, and, you know, all sorts of things in between. Uh, and then, then you might think, well, okay, there, there's like what was, what's called uh, narrow philosophical, you know, what I call the essay, narrow philosophical liberalism, where narrow philosophical liberalism uh, really, uh, really means um, that, you know, it's the kind of thing that people are often talking about when they use the phrase like classical liberalism, right? You see this a lot. Like there's a certain kind of libertarian who wants to be called a classical liberal. There's a certain kind of conservative <laughs> who wants to be called a classical liberal. And it's a little vague what it means, but I think that roughly speaking, we could say like some of the specific package of views that were held by people like, for example, John Locke, um, it's still a little bit of a broad family, but as the name indicates, like much less of a broad family than, you know, broad philosophical liberalism. So, you know, when I'm thinking about narrow philosophical liberalism, I mean views where the sort of whatever package of rights you think every single human being is born with um, include really specifically something or other that's supposed to justify capitalist property rights. Uh, so you, know, you can see why people call this classical liberalism because this is liberalism as sort of originally emerging in opposition to the sort of remnants of the feudal ancien regime. Uh, but it's not. Uh, but um, the reason I kind of resist calling it classical liberalism uh, specifically is uh, is that. 
I think as a matter of chronology, it's a little bit dubious because really, um, you know, kind of modern libertarianism is very different from like what somebody like John Locke thought. Uh, he actually had a lot of very unlibertarian views. Um, and people who sort of had broad philosophically liberal philosophical inclinations and used those to justify very non-libertarian economic conclusions. I mean, look, there were plenty of those in the French Revolution already, so this can't really be a chronological distinction. I just don't find that, you know, phrase helpful, you know, classical liberalism. Um, but put that aside, right? So take these four categories as I've been thinking about them, broad philosophical liberalism, narrow philosophical liberalism, um, constitutional liberalism, and liberalism as a contemporary political position. So if we're going to ask about socialism, or better yet, even Marxism and philosophical liberalism, which of these fits, which of them doesn't fit? Well, the position I take in the essay that I wrote for Matt's book was that... Um, Obviously, liberalism as a contemporary political position is incompatible with um, with you know Marxism or socialism, right? That that much is is straightforward. Um, you know, when we talk about liberalism as a contemporary political position, part of what we mean by that is like liberalism as opposed to radicalism. So you know that one's pretty you know that one's clear enough. Similarly, um, you know. Marx's version of, you know, normative socialist commitments or any kind of socialist commitments are going to be incompatible with narrow philosophical liberalism because part of how we defined it uh, was as pro-capitalist, right, as a defense of sort of existing capitalist property rights. So if you mean contemporary political liberalism or if you mean um, narrow philosophical liberalism, definitely, you know, Marxism and socialism more generally are incompatible with both of those. Uh, constitutional liberalism, broad philosophical liberalism, though, I think it is quite compatible with. Um, so constitutional liberalism, you know, it's certainly the case that there have been plenty of, um, you know, state socialist regimes that have not, uh, you know, that, that, that have, you know, violated wildly sort of liberal political freedoms. But I would argue that certainly in terms of the goals of socialism, as somebody like Marx understood them, you know, how he understood that, the empowerment of the working class, the ordinary working people kind of taking over society and running it, um, you know, running it for themselves, you know, that um, having, you know, the extension of democracy from the uh, from politics to the economy, which is definitely how, how Marx and Engels understood socialism. Well, I don't think you could have meaningful mass political participation without those liberal freedoms that if you don't have, you know, free speech and, you know, freedom to form alternative political parties, and if you're worried about, you know, the secret police knock at midnight without, uh, uh, you know, being able to have a fair trial and all that stuff, you know, whatever the historical circumstances that led those things to a bridge, to be abridged, you know, without, you know, saying anything one way or the other about that question, it's just not the case that you're going to have meaningful political democracy, never mind economic democracy, without those things. I think that's like the lesson of the 20th century, you know, the Russian Revolution and a series of other things that happen after that. Okay, so given all of that, uh, so we've said, yes, it's compatible on constitutional liberalism. And in fact, I think if you read a lot of what Marx wrote in the 1840s, uh, when he was a you know the editor of a subversive newspaper in Germany that was always being censored, he wrote extensively about free speech in the uh, very unfortunately named uh, the Jewish question, uh, which is actually pro equal rights for Jewish people. Though he uses some anti-Semitic imagery and analogies at one point, but it's you know he's not making an anti-Semitic point. But in there, you know he he celebrates you know liberal political freedoms like freedom of religion. Uh, he says they don't go far enough. He says that they, you know, sort of have this shallow content, you know, as long as we have capitalism and that we need to go beyond that. But, you know, he does celebrate it, right? So Marx is definitely for uh, constitutional liberalism. And I think there are good reasons why anybody who understands socialism the way that Marx did should be in favor of constitutional liberalism. Okay, so that leaves us with broad philosophical liberalism. And here I'd go even further and say not only is that compatible with 
you know, Marxism or with the sort of commitments to socialism that Marx had and that were typically attributed to people when they call them Marxists, right? We typically don't just mean, we call somebody a Marxist, we typically don't just mean like that uh, they agree with Marx's descriptive analysis of how capitalism works and how history works and all that stuff. We typically mean that they share his radical socialist, you know, normative political commitments. So given that, uh, I... I think that it's actually impossible to make sense of those commitments without broad philosophical liberalism, right? If you don't believe that every human being, you know, sort of matters and has, you know, and is innately important and, you know, and has a certain, you know, has an equal claim on society and all that stuff, then um, what's the point, right? You know, why would you be a socialist in the first place? Uh, certainly in terms of the way that Marx always, you know, explained socialism, and you know, the way that he, you know, the way that he understood socialism, you know, he talked about the rule of labor, you know, the sort of free and republican system of the rule of the working class. Um, then, you know, there's no doubt whatsoever about that connection. Okay. Um, in fact, I think that the way, you know, to understand the particular form of broad philosophical liberalism, you know, there's certainly a version of philosophical liberalism that Marx was rebelling against, but I think it's within that sort of broad assumption of philosophical you know, philosophical liberalism. Um, I, I think that in some ways Marx is hearkening back to what's sometimes called the Republican theory of liberty, small r, <laughs> Republican, like ancient Greek and Roman republics, um, which is a view that primarily sees liberty in terms of non-domination, right? Not like the way that a libertarian would see it, like liberty is non-aggression or non-coercion, but it's non-domination that, you know, one person is not subordinated to another person. And whereas ancient Greek and Roman thinkers thought that uh, you could only have a class of free citizens if other people were slaves, right? So you could only have some people be self-governing if uh, there were other people who were um, sort of doing all the menial work to free them up, you know, to participate in running their own affairs. Uh, I think a lot of ways the sort of socialist commitments that, you know, the socialists left in the 19th century that Marx and Engels were part of, what that is, it's a combination of the Republican theory of liberty with broad philosophical liberalism, with the idea this is what freedom is and everyone should have it. All right, but in some ways, what I've said so far, um, at least philosophically, I think, the, I think constitutional liberalism is significant in itself, but at least philosophically, I think what I've said so far doesn't sort of give us anything super interesting, right? Because, you know, ultimately... You might think, okay, so, you know, Marx and other socialists have thought that, you know, have been liberals in, this, in the broad sense that, you know, they don't think that there's a, you know, they don't think that there's a sort of innate hierarchy among human beings and you shouldn't be, you know, allowed to do anything that goes outside of that. You have, uh, they think everybody has some sort of important package of rights and, you know, equal dignity, but you might kind of think so does everybody else. Right? So the way I put it in my essay is like, look, unless you're like a neo-Nazi meeting in a basement somewhere or, you know, a uh, warlord leading a pack of child soldiers around a conflict zone, uh, you know, you probably in some sense believe, you know, unless you're actually like, you know, a member of ISIS, right? You know, you probably believe in some sense in broad philosophical liberalism because everybody does, right? That's one of the reasons that that phrase classical liberalism irks me so much because think, okay, well, just say that you have views that are ultimately can be traced back to the liberal philosophical tradition. So does everybody, right? That's like saying that you, you're made out of particles that, you know, can be traced back to the big bang. You know, that's, that's not significant. And granted, I know that's all a little bit of exaggeration. You know, Alexander Dugan, I talked to Matt McManus about him on the show. Um, Alexander Dugan is a, uh, you know, is certainly an exception to this. Uh, if you watch his debate with Bernard-Henri Lévy, uh, Dugan says that individuals no more have a rights, have rights against the state than the parts of your body have against the body, uh, which uh, is certainly as raw a statement of opposition to even the broadest possible philosophical liberalism that I've ever heard. Uh, you could look at some Catholic integralist thinkers and see some, like, really deeply illiberal impulses there philosophically, but... You know, even so, most people, right, anything that's broad enough that it covers everybody from Marxists to libertarians to Buckleyite conservatives to regular liberals to, you know, social democrats to et cetera, 
like is not super interested, right? I mean, like that's a really, 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 really broad category. Okay. Um, so then what I thought would be maybe more interesting uh, for the talk in Toronto, and I'll kind of wrap up on, on this as a little preview of coming attractions for that. Uh, and by the way, if anybody wants to call in with any questions or comments, um, go ahead and get in the queue now to do that. And I'll try to take you before, before we finish up. But uh, certainly, I think that um, one, um, you know, one way to make this more interesting, right, than to say, okay, so philosophically, the only sense in which Marx is a liberal is this super duper broad sense that would go for like everybody from, you know, radical socialists to radically pro capitalist libertarians to social democrats to Buckleyite conservatives to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So who cares? So I think a maybe more interesting question would be to narrow it down to a more specific form of philosophical liberalism and ask how that's related to Marx and Marxism. So I think the obvious candidate uh, would be to look at the most important liberal political philosopher of like, I don't know, last hundred years, I'm sure, John Rawls and his theory of justice and ask how that relates to Marxism. And a long-standing view that I've had, like a really long-standing view, my, um, when I applied to graduate programs, um, you know, when I was applying to my, the master's program that I ended up going to at Western Michigan, which I started at in January 2004, so this would have been like, um, you know, sometime in like fall 2002, I was probably putting together my application, so 20 years ago. Uh, my writing sample was about Mark. It was about Marx and Rawls, and whether Marx's political commitments were consistent with Rawls's theory of justice. And I said, "Yeah, right. Um, I think they, I think they are. In fact, I think that uh, I think there are interesting reasons why many Marxists have thought they were not consistent, and probably why many Rawlsians have thought they weren't consistent. But I also think all those people are wrong. I think ultimately it is consistent. I think that something like Rawls's view. Uh, remember." You know, Rawls um, thinks that a just set of institutions are ones that you would select from, well, just try to maximize your, your own self-interest from behind the veil of ignorance. You didn't know who you were going to be in a society that you were designing. Um, so, you know, you wouldn't want to disfavor anybody's interests because it might be your, your interests who are being disfavored. Uh, so I think that actually really makes sense of, like, why be a socialist in the first place? And certainly I think what makes somebody like Marx normatively tick in the first place. But there is a big obvious reason why some people uh, would, um, you know, there are several reasons why you might not think so. Uh, one of the least interested reasons why you might think, not think so is that you might think, well, Marx isn't really in the business of normative political philosophy in the first place, right? He's, he's in the business of giving a descriptive analysis of how capitalism works, of how historical change happens. Um, you know, he's got an economic and historical theory and, you know, that includes predictions about the future. And sure, he might be rooted for certain kinds of outcome, right? He's on the side of the workers. But you might think he's just not really in the interests of arguments about values, about justice. In fact, usually when he uses the word justice, he's being kind of dismissive because he associates that with some of the specific philosophers that he's criticizing, like in the German ideology. Uh, I don't really buy that response, uh, because I think that, um, I think Marx clearly does express normative opinions all the damn time. Um, I think certainly in Capital, you know, like, it's overflowing with moral outrage about the way that workers were brutalized under capitalism. Uh, I, I think that, um, in fact, if you read the critique of the Gotham program, uh, in there, you know, Marx is, uh, when he's criticized the Lasallians, he's expressing a lot of views about distributive justice, about what would count as a fair or unfair way, even though he doesn't put it that way, to distribute resources. And he has opinions about that. Uh, so, you know, if you're interested, if you agree with his opinions and you're in the, and you're interested in trying to make those cons opinions consistent with each other to sort of put them in a co internally coherent picture, 
then you know you're in the business of normative political philosophy uh, and this question about whether you know Marx's views are you know compatible or incompatible with Rawls's does come up. I mean, if you're not interested in being consistent, I don't know what to say to that except you know I don't know stop listening. But uh, but if you are interested in being consistent, you're in the normative political philosophy business. So uh, next um, next you could say. Um, Okay, granted that Marx that Marx is in the normative political philosophy business, um, Rawls is a liberal, not just the broad philosophical sense, but you might think he's also a liberal in the you know like contemporary political sense. And certainly, look, he wasn't any kind of radical on a day to day basis. He accepted an award from Bill Clinton at one point. You know, I don't, you know, he didn't seem to spend a lot of time expressing opinions about contemporary politics uh, in most contexts, right? He did a little bit, but not that much. He certainly wasn't any kind of fire-breathing radical. Um, so in that sense, fair enough. Uh, but also, you know, he has this framework for thinking about justice. And even if he himself didn't realize it, it could still be the case that that framework is incompatible with support for capitalism, right? Like a theory could have logical implications that the theorist himself doesn't see. And in Rawls's case, towards the end of his life, he actually did see it, right? Even if he didn't act on it in terms of his personal politics, uh, he did see it theoretically. If you read his book, a uh, very late book, Justice is Fairness, a philosophical, uh, could, Justice is Fairness, a restatement, I think that's the full title of the book, and there, he actually goes through different kinds of regimes, and you know he considers whether they're compatible with his theory of justice. And he explicitly says that capitalism, even capitalism with a big welfare state, would not, in fact, meet the requirements of his theory of justice. Okay, so if neither of those reasons to think that Marxism and Rawls are inconsistent are persuasive, then could there be another one? Well, um, I think the most interesting one, the one I'm actually most sympathetic to, is to say, well, hey, if we're thinking about, you know, English language, political philosophy in the late 20th and you know, early 21st centuries, uh, you know, the sort of environment that Rawls is, is writing in, there is, in fact, a major figure in this environment who is A, a Marxist, and B, spends a lot of time, or at least this is how most of people would think about it, criticizing roles for the left. That would be Jerry Cohen, G.A. Cohen, who I just wrote two articles about for Jacobin. And as everybody knows, I'm a huge fan of G.A. Cohen. So um, Cohen certainly thinks that, you know, these sorts of, you know, I mean, Cohen is a Marxist who thinks that his radical socialist political commitments uh, point him towards opposition to Rawls's theory of justice. So why don't I buy that? Well, I am tempted to just stop right there and say this is a preview of coming attractions uh, for uh, for the, the talk I'm giving in Toronto on Friday at, at uh, 6.30 at Ryerson. Um, but I'm going to say a little bit more, just a little bit, not too much. Uh, so the, the just a little bit more that I'll say right now is has to do with What's the suck? What counts as the subject matter of a theory of justice? And so, part of the difference, it's not the whole difference between Rawls and Cohen, is that Rawls has what's called the basic structure constraint on a theory of justice. He's, Rawls thinks a theory of justice only applies to the basic structure of society. That that's the that's the only thing that's supposed to sort of cover, and Cohen disagrees. Now, I think Cohen in his criticism of Rawls actually catches him in a lot of real inconsistencies. I think he catches him making some bad arguments for this basic structure constraint. But I actually think there might be some good reasons to accept something like the basic structure constraint. I think there are both some just general reasons to think that when we're thinking about what justice is that it should apply to basic structures. Now, that would include, for me, economic structures, not just political ones, uh, but that, you know, that those, like, institutions rather than individual behavior are what it should cover, that, like, individual virtue 
and societal justice should just be considered to be slightly different subjects. Right? That's that's my that's my view on that. Uh, and that's and the argument that I'll make for that is just a sort of generic argument that like anybody could make. Um, you could be a libertarian. You could be you know you could be a liberal in the bad sense. You know. Uh, you could be a conservative, you could be whatever, and still make the sort of generic argument that these are just different subjects, since for me that has to do with the difference between what makes something a good institution and what makes something a, somebody a good person, which is probably all I'll say about that, because I want to get to Chase's call and then probably end uh, in a couple minutes after that. Um, but then there's there's also, I think, a few specifically socialist reasons and I'm not going to try to give them all now in like the next two minutes. Again, I'm giving this talk. Anybody who's in Toronto can go see it on Friday. And if you're not in Toronto, you can go see it on YouTube in you know a week or something, uh, whenever we get the video. But I think that this idea that sort of individual morality and societal justice should be thought of in exactly the same way I think in a way is what like Marxists, materialists, you know, kind of socialists spend all their time pushing back on and should very rightly spend all their time pushing back on said, no, try to get individuals to be more virtuous has nothing to do with institutional structural kind of analysis. Um, and in fact, when you look at the sort of big, I think for the sake of time, I'm just going to have to say it. And if you have no idea what I'm saying, I'll just say like, see talk uh, in the uh, in the lecture i'm going to go into a bunch of detail about this but i think that the sort of big sort of tangible difference between the details of marx of uh, rawls's theory of justice that um and cohen's view about justice is supposed to be this thing about the difference principle in other words under what circumstances are inequalities justified or not justified now I think part of the reason that Cohen is so concerned about this is that I think Cohen is under the misimpression that if you accept the difference principle, that's going to give you a reason to accept capitalism. I think the kind of inequalities we have in capitalism always and everywhere go way beyond what the difference principle would permit, even if we have a very constrained welfare state kind of capitalism. Um, I, I think, you know, I think that you need socialism to get, you know, to get the inequality down to what the difference principle would permit. But then also... Um, I think a really interesting thing, and I think I'll just kind of leave this as a preview of coming attractions, then take Chase's call and end, is that if you read the first chapter of Marx's critique of the Gotha program, I think Marx accepts the difference principle too. And I think once we really start to look at his arguments, I think Marx has good arguments for accepting something like the difference principle. And I think socialists should actually accept it. All right, I'm going to leave it there and take uh, Chase's call. Chase, what is on your mind? Hey, can you hear me, Ben? I can. Hey, um, so I jumped in late, and I'm not sure if you addressed my question in any way yet. So no worries. In advance. Um, first off, thanks for trying to make these arguments, because I've grown increasingly concerned with illiberalism, to use a kind of yeah. inelegant word, but, you know, like the Compact Magazine. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard Doug Henwood's interview um, uh, recently on that, but it was really quite good. And, you know, I think there's, I think there's a lot of growth potential in a kind of illiberal, you know, center right politics of some kind. So, you know, thanks for trying to make these connections. But, um, my question was, um, I'm less, I'm less, uh, keen on the, um, the Walzian or Kantian kind of frameworks for yeah. argument for liberalism. Yep. But I've always been really, uh, I've always found like the Judas Sklar, Bernard Williams liberalism mm-hmm. of fear mm-hmm. compelling. Um, you know, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that and its connections uh, with some of these questions. <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so I know Williams a little bit, Sklar much less. Uh, I should say, by the way, just to circle back to the part about Compact, just to just to plug this here, um, I did write something for, uh, for Jack a bit about Compact. Uh, the title, which I cannot take any credit for, this is all Micah Uetricht, the deputy editor of Jacobin, who put this title on it, uh, is uh, uh, Stop, make, Stop Trying to Make Right-Wing Social Democracy Happen. It's not going to happen. But... Uh, 
Uh, but in any case, um, yeah, and, and it is actually really funny, you know, because I, I actually spent, I think it's one of these things where, you know, both things are true. Uh, as Stephen A. Smith always tries to teach us, sometimes two things can be true. Uh, but, um, you know, that like I spent a lot of time sort of trying to get like, you know, leftists not to be like weird, alienated, ultra woke weirdos. Um, and, and I think that's like a thing that's worth doing. But then, like, when the, the compact people come out and be like, oh, also, you shouldn't support, like, basic social progressive policies. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> don't, 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 no. <laughs> Let's slam the brakes on that, guys. Uh, you know, you can you cannot be an alienated weirdo about it and still support, you know, human rights. Um, and you should, right? Like, it's, you know, gay rights, trans rights, abortion, all that stuff, like, is actually incredibly important in terms of human liberation. But... Um, but yeah, I guess, so, I mean, I guess, like, in some ways, I think probably, at least with what I kind of understand about Williams' views, and you can maybe feel it a little bit more of the sort of details of what you have in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess but, I guess the, um, the center of it would just be, uh, Sklar has the phrase, putting cruelty first. Uh-huh. You know, um, saying that like before we have talk about questions of um, of rights or yeah. um, you know first principles, a liberal politics is a politics kind of born out of a historical moment of trying to stop uh, perpetual ethnic and religious strife, um, and uh, you know we should we should put the um, that aspect of it first, which is an avoidance of cruelty um, in politics. Yeah, right. It's certainly hard to argue with that. Um, I, I think that, um, I, I mean, I, I certainly have no objection to, I mean, kind of making like, hey, that's really cruel arguments against <laughs> uh, illiberal things or, you know, against economic inequality for that matter. I mean, those are arguments of a kind that I think I make pretty regularly. Uh, and I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think I'm an error for, you know, making those. Uh, but I also think that if we sort of, I guess my initial instinct, right, is if we want to like think a little bit harder about what's going on there, right? You know, when we say like, Hey, these are these specific things that we object to because they're really cruel, right? Like is, you know, I, I mean, I think there's a way of, kind of hammer it into like what the what the point is like what the sort of larger vision is of how to think about politics or you know how to think about justice that sort of would just become like utilitarianism right we want to avoid suffering and promote you know happiness flourishing whatever and don't get me wrong we we do want to avoid suffering and we do want to promote you know happiness flourishing whatever um but you know like for reasons that in fact somebody like williams spends a fair amount of time talking about like i think that's not really an adequate way mm-hmm. of framework in itself like i think that the I, th- I think it's gonna have um i mean i think you're gonna have a hard time sort of explaining some making sense of some important moral intuitions if you just kind of stop there and oh. you you say like because okay, I mean, obviously it's good to avoid suffering, but then you you sort of start to think about, like, more specific examples, and there are times when anything you do is going to cause some suffering to someone, uh, and uh, and you want to see, like, how you kind of pick. Uh, and, and I think it's very... I'm very skeptical of the, you know, any kind of analysis of that that doesn't, you know, that doesn't eventually start to, like, talk about, you know, rights and duties and things like that. And and I guess I'd also say one last thing about this is just that, like, I mean, to the extent that the way of getting around that problem is just to say, well, okay, we want to sort of avoid cruelty. That's like, you know, one kind of value that we're trying to serve politically. And then, you know, maybe you get around some of the hard cases by saying that, like, here are some other values that you want to bring in. You have to balance them and whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's all fine, but I also think that, like... Showing that socialist politics are compatible with some framework like this, 
I think in some ways, if you go with that, then it's like very easy and fair enough, right? Like in some ways, I think it's maybe more interesting to show that it's compatible with or even like very deeply fits with something that's like, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit less fuzzy. Yeah. No, I, I get that. I I guess I have one quick other question, which sure. is that it seems like a lot of the illiberalism yeah. uh, that we're seeing or the attack of liberalism is really just an attack on pluralism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, I, I almost want to say a kind of cosmopolitanism, although that yeah, word, sure. that word yeah. has, can be thrown around. And so can pluralism, I guess, can be thrown around a lot without a lot of specifying exactly what it means. But um, do you, I mean, do you think... Do you think the Rawlsian variety of liberalism is up to the task of defending the, you know, pluralism, or at least the parts of pluralism we'd like to defend? Um, or do you do you think that maybe something a little bit more dynamic needs to be uh, involved? I mean, I, there's always these questions: the tension between like universal, you know, pr- proposals and like more particular, you know, things, but. I mean, I guess it depends what you mean by up to the task, right? Like, um, in other words, if, you know, if the question is, do I think it's like a something like a Rawlsian way of thinking about justice explains why pluralism is important and is correct, right? You know, then, uh, then I guess I pretty much think so. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, if the, if up to the task means sort of rhetorically up to the task, you know, sort mm-hmm. of uh, it like kind of properly motivates people or something like that, then I don't know that that's necessarily the job of this sort of like more like abstract way of trying to precisely think about how it works, right? Like I think that you could have um, – I mean I think when you kind of translate that into day-to-day politics and, you know – like whatever i mean to argue with people to you know writing articles for jacobin to whatever you know like i think that i think that probably you know a plurality of strategies you know should should be used right. there to sort of like kind of call attention to like why this stuff is important to why it should be defended but i think that if you're sort of um you know but if you um you know but i mean if the if up to the task just means like, can this sort of give us a correct abstract explanation of, of how to think about this stuff, then yeah, I think it might. I mean, I think that the, yeah. I, I mean, I think there might be good criticisms there that would kind of have to be taken one at a time. But I mean, like, I, I, I think in, in principle, I'm not sure why not. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't want to get on a tangent, but um, I mean, one difference seems to be that, you know, Rawls's project is an attempt to try to make sense of certain, ethical impulses that we have and describe those. Yeah. Um, well, while Marx is, has much more to do with actually what, what he believes at least is actually existing societies and like agency mm-hmm. in history. And those questions don't seem to come up much with Rawls. As far no, as no, I think they're doing different. I mean, I agree that they're mostly doing different things. Although I also think that what Mark, that what Rawls is doing, Marx is doing a little bit of. So I think that, um, you know, most of what Marx puts most of his time into is not actually about values at all. It's about facts. You know, Mm, it's about trying to, um, try to figure out how, you know, historical change works, what the internal dynamics of a capitalist society are, what sort of possibilities that creates for, you know, creating, you know, for transitioning to, to a, a new society, all of that. Uh, and that that's, you know, I mean, I think that's all incredibly important stuff, but I mean, it's just a different thing from any sort of normative political philosophy, whether Rawlsian or, you know, Sklar Williams or, or anything, right. You know, that they have a, that like, cause it's, it's just like you're, you know, I mean, look, it would be consistent. It would be incredibly weird, but it would be internally consistent for somebody to be like, yeah, I'm a Marxist in that sense. I, I think that Marx is completely right about how history works. I think Marx is completely, you know, I think Marx is completely right about what the internal dynamics of capitalist economy are, et cetera. But like, I just, you know, I just like capitalism, right? I mean, I, I want to keep it as long as possible. And then if it's a choice between socialism and barbarism, I, I choose barbarism, right? You know, like that would be, that would be an internally consistent package of positions, albeit, you know, psychologically unlikely that anybody would actually hold it. But I think that, um, but I think that like there's, there is an extent, though, to which to which Marx 
does get into the, the normative political philosophy business a little bit, right? Usually it's just kind of around the edges, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. he'll sort of, um, you know, like he'll, there will be a lot of implied value judgments in what he's saying, you know, that like he, he'll, um, you know, I mean, he'll certainly express moral outrage about things. Uh, and, you know, then there will be some explicit value judgments, like, you know, he'll talk about freedom, a fair amount in like a positive and ironic way as a value. Um, and every, and there are a couple places, not, not like really just a couple, right. But there are a couple places where he does get in a little bit, you know, to like actual, like distributive justice questions, you know, that he, um, that, you know, like, yeah, I mentioned earlier the you know, beginning of critique of the Goth program when he's criticizing the, Lasallians, you know, for um, for saying that you know workers should equally get the full product of their labor and all that stuff, uh, he is definitely doing you know like the kind of normative political philosophy where you're actually worried about what counts as a just distribution of resources, even though he doesn't put it that way. But I mean that it's certainly how it reads to me. And um, like, what if his criticisms of Lasallian is you know Lasallianism about distribution is that uh, saying that everybody should equally get back what they put into the labor process. Well, that means either we're rewarding the duration of intensity or, you know, the duration or the intensity or both of labor. But then he says, well, you're just rewarded a natural aristocracy because, you know, some people are, are able to work more or work harder, you know, um, just, just because, you know, he says not everybody's equally strong, not everybody's equally fast, not everybody's equally smart, you know, and, and it sounds, I've got to say like nothing so much as like Rawls's critique of meritocracy. Right. So, I, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, I think if the point is just like that, there is, um, that there's like that Marx's primary emphasis is on historical and, and economic analysis, and that he doesn't really bother to sort of like spell out like any kind of like fleshed out normative theory. I think that's clearly correct. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I think what that means in terms of like how to sort of relate, uh, sort of how to relate Marx to, to different like options in normative political philosophy. Once we do go into the normative political philosophy business, I think is a little bit less mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to take up much more time, but uh, the other way around, though, do you think that there might be an issue with Rawls constructing a theory in which, you know, actually existing? I, I believe Chomsky actually made this point in some yeah. interview, maybe that, you know, for Rawls, it's almost like actually existing politics doesn't exist. And these questions are out in agency and like what to do in the here and now, um, you know, you know, don't really figure much. This is also uh, Raymond Geis's criticism mm-hmm. of uh, of Rawls in his great book, um, Philosophy and Real Politics. Um, and I was wondering, do you think there's an issue there um, with with Rawls's system? Yeah, I guess I really don't particularly. I think that the, um, I mean, I think that it. <sighs> I mean, I think it depends a little bit about how you cash out the the criticism, right? I mean, I've seen the Chomsky quote, and I'm not, like, I feel like it's a little bit unclear, you know, mm-hmm. even to me at least, what that actually, you know, means, right? You know, because it's like if the, you know, like, I mean, one way you could sort of cash it out is like, um, well, it doesn't really matter because, like, it doesn't really matter what would count as perfect justice because the society we've got right now is so obviously unjust that like we don't really need to get that fine grained about justice because you know to mm-hmm. for any anything that happens in the foreseeable human future like we're just fighting against things that are so um uh that are so obviously unjust right that they that like that like any remotely plausible theory of justice is going to tell you that like is going to tell you which things you should support instead because they'll, they'll be the things that are possible that get us a little bit further for this level of injustice. So this is kind of like, um, this is what G.A. Cohen said was sort of his view before he uh, read, read Nozick that like, um, that, you know, he, he worried about, you know, like Cohen was worried about trying to like sort of make precise Marxist theory of history or whatever. And he was, 
And sure, he'd like teach classes, of course, where he'd, you know, talk about, you know, moral philosophy and normative political philosophy. But he didn't really worry about it that much, he said, because it's like, yeah, whatever. Like, whichever, you know, whether like you're, you know, you can kind of be a utilitarian or a content or whatever, and like have whatever kind of abstract view about morality and the injustice of capitalism, the comparative desirability of socialism is just going to be so obvious that it'll just sort of be in the overlap of all those views. So it's just not something you have to worry about. Uh, and then he said, reading like Nozick, you know, and sort of giving this like substantive moral argument against socialism made him revisit that. Um, I, I guess, and then maybe another way you could cash it out, which would be, I think, probably the way that like would be the most like sort of orthodox Marxist way to think about it would be, well, it doesn't really matter because, um, you know, look, there, there just really aren't that many historical options for what could happen. So mm. we don't have to like, you know, like it's sort of a weird waste of time to, to think about what would count as, as a completely just society because there are, you know, I mean, either we're going to have socialism or we're going to like regress into barbarism or whatever. And, uh, and you know, it's not that there are like a hundred kinds of socialism that we might get. It's, it's really just that there's like, you know, there's a new socialist society that's gestating within the womb of the old capitalist one. And we could either like deliver it and have a living, you know, have a living child, uh, or we can, you know, have a miscarriage and, you know, barbarism, but those are really the only options. And since, you know, which one of those is more just than the other is just, you know, like not a, you know, is, is just so uninterestingly obvious, then like who really cares what would be the most just society if we could somehow, you know, exercise a bunch of really fine grain control over what was going to happen, you know, like, like, and certainly there are things that Mark says that would, you know, at least indicate that kind of, you know, like the you know, obstetric metaphor, you know, for, for how to think about historical change. Uh, but I would just say like, you know, clearly not right. I mean, like look at the history of, you know, 20th century socialist experiments. I think it's just, you know, not at all of, you know, I don't think that there's anything about, you know, how a social society could work. That's just sort of built in. I think you have to figure it all out, which I think makes, you know, I think it makes the sort of engineering logistical questions important, but I think it also makes the value questions about what counts as justice important. Right, right. Well, thanks for your time. I don't want to take up any more of it. So, okay. Thank you. Cool. Well, thank you so much for the call. That was really interesting. All right, guys. Uh, I am going to cut it off there uh, for... Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I'm going to cut it off there, I think, for today. But um, I am... Uh, Andrew, I see you. Uh, if you call it at the beginning next time, I promise I will take your call before anybody else's. But uh, it is uh, 642 this is later than I was planning to go today. Uh, we ended up, the guest who we were going to have was having some technical difficulties. And it got to the point where we'd already, you know, we were like 15 minutes or 16 or 17 minutes after we were supposed to start. And I'd actually been live for a few minutes. So I thought we should do this instead. And then, you know, anyway, it ended up taking until now. But I have to get ready for a debate that's happening uh, live on the GTA YouTube channel at eight o'clock, uh, that's uh, with Aaron Rabinovitz of the Embrace the Void podcast. It's is free real real and doesn't matter is the uh, is the subject. So I have to get ready for that, uh, and uh, have to you know have to you know have to pack. <laughs> uh, so uh, as much as I would like to take Andrew's Andrew's call, I don't think I can do it right now. So I am going to cut it off now. But uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you Chase and Andrew for calling in. Left is best.